Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the results of the California primaries, which in many ways are a referendum on how the nation deals with poverty, homelessness, and inequality. Unfortunately, the results indicate we are becoming a nation that accepts the notion that people are disposable and that privilege has to be protected from the blight of homelessness, making it out of sight and out of mind, rather than an imperative civilized society cannot accept, let alone ignore. Joining us is Gary Blasey, a professor of law emeritus at UCLA, where he's also the founding the founding and core faculty of the law school's program in public interest law and policy, and also served as director of the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. With 40 years' experience in property law, housing, and homelessness, he was named one of the top 100 lawyers in California, cited as the go-to lawyer for community groups in need. Then we'll examine what can be done to prevent the November election of a billionaire developer in Los Angeles who would create homeless encampments while adding many more police to criminalize an issue with its roots in poverty, inequality, unaffordable housing, mental health, and substance abuse. Joining us is Peter Dreyer, Distinguished Professor of Politics and Chair of the Urban and Environmental Policy Department at Occidental College. His books include Place Matters, Metro Politics for the 21st Century, and The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, a Social Justice Hall of Fame. Then finally we'll assess whether the nation's pundits are right in interpreting the results of the California primaries as a rebuke of the progressive left and a warning to the Democratic Party to get tough on crime and reject criminal justice reform. Joining us is Lara Bazelon, a professor of law and director of the Criminal, Juvenile Justice and Racial Justice Clinical Programs at the University of San Francisco School of Law. Previously, she was director of the Loyola Law School Project for the Innocent and a trial attorney in the Office of the Federal Public Defender in Los Angeles for seven years. A contributing writer to Slate and Politico magazine, she's the author of Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Gary Blasey, who is a professor of law emeritus at UCLA, where he's also the founding and core faculty of the law school's program in public interest law and policy. And he also served as director of the Institute for the Research on Labor and Employment. With 40 years' experience in property law, housing, and homelessness, he was named one of the top 100 lawyers in California, cited as the go-to lawyer for community groups in need. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gary Blasey. Thank you. So as a result of the elections in California, there's this kind of sense that uh, this is a, a rebuke of the democratic left in terms of progressive politics that 
the party itself, as this is according to the pundits, has got to sort of divest itself of any any whiff of of defund the police and get more police on the beat and be more friendly to law enforcement. And this seems to be uh, at least the analysis of uh, what happened in these uh, primary elections uh, yesterday, um, particularly with the results in San Francisco and, and in Los Angeles. How do you see it? Well, I think that's that's right. Um, and I've been paying particularly close attention to what uh, the candidates are saying about homelessness, uh, which is, uh, from the polls, I believe, uh, regarded as the number one issue uh, that's uh, driving uh, many of the policy positions or platforms of, of candidates and, and driving it in, in a very bad direction. So give us a sense of why it's in a bad direction. Well, um, what seems to be energizing people is the prevalence and uh, widespread existence of encampments of homeless people. In other words, not so much their homelessness, but their visibility. And um, the um, all the candidates are promising to, uh, just to solve that problem. Uh, and it's only solvable by ultimately by providing actual housing uh, that people can, can access and, and can afford. But um, that can't be done um, on an emergency basis, which is, for example, what uh, Rick, Caruso, Rick Caruso has um, suggested, um, declaring a state of emergency and basically sweeping people off the streets and into, into uh, some kind of uh, shelter, uh, which is a scary proposition if you know anything about the, the details. What if you know anything about history? Hitler and Stalin come to mind. Well, and we actually had an experiment with this uh, in Los Angeles in the 80s. Um, in the downtown area, the Bradley administration created something called the Urban Campground, which was 18 acres of dirt surrounded by um, eight-foot-high chain-link fences topped by um, barbed wire with only one way in and one way out where people were uh, allowed to take their own tents. And LAPD would offer people the choice of either jail or what was called the urban campground. And before long, there were a thousand people um, behind um, that fence. And um, 90% of them probably were people of color. So, um, And I think everybody quickly recognized what a terrible idea that was, particularly when some city council people suggesting that the big problem was that uh, this needed to be out in the desert rather than in the city itself. So do you think that the so-called policy or program, even though none of it was spelled out by the billionaire developer Caruso, of the idea that we have to deal with homelessness, you don't think that dealing with it is any has anything to do with, well, it has more to do with cruelty than compassion? Well, certainly the result is um, is adding tremendous burdens to people who already have um, a phenomenal um, set of things that they they have to deal with. So it is it is a sort of multiplying uh, cruelty upon cruelty, and that's the case because um, I would expect Caruso to try to be true to his word, and the only way that can possibly be done is to force people into uh, some 
some form of uh, large camps, organized camps, um, where there is security and people's uh, lives are, and persons are under constant surveillance, and they're offered a place to stay during the night, but then kicked out during the day. Um, that's the only thing that can be that could be scaled up. So, um, yeah, it's, and I, I think he's. I don't know whether he or other people have compared his plans with the idea of the camps that are set up along the southern border for um, for immigrants as a sort of a, a model for what might happen here with uh, with people who are not immigrants. And again, I'm speaking with Gary Blasey, who's a professor of law emeritus at UCLA, where he's also the founding and core faculty in the law school's program in public interest law and policy. He also serves as director of the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment with 40 years experience in property law, housing and homelessness. He was named one of the top 100 lawyers in California, cited as the go-to lawyer for community groups in need. So how do you explain affluent voters, liberal voters in this blue state voting for this guy, does that mean that wealthy, privileged people really just want to hold on to their wealth and privilege and live behind walls and they just want this so-called problem out of sight and out of mind? Well, I do think that's a fair summary of what's going on, but on the other hand, I do think it's understandable. I mean, the fact that we have in a city with many, many houses selling above $100 million. We have um, so many people sleeping on the sidewalk. I mean, those encampments are outrageous, and um, they're regarded as outrageous by the people uh, who are in them. Uh, but it's the only thing that um, that they've got available. And I think the public's also been misled to, um, to understand what their real problems are um, and it's often defined as these are people who who uh, have to be forced into uh, an alternative shelter or something like that because they're not capable of making their own decisions and that's that's um, exactly false um, the all the evidence is that if you offer people something better than what they have including people in encampments they will take that offer and uh, you don't need any police officers uh, to uh, guide them they will uh, just show up voluntarily in a, in a better place. Uh, but um, the focus has been on the need to, to use force to, um, to solve what is essentially a, a housing problem. I mean, is completely a housing problem. Uh, although there are people who need additional services, none of those services mean anything if they're delivered um, where people are not housed. So you've studied this problem and visited the, these homeless sites. A lot of people say that, apart from so-called dealing with homelessness, that you should be dealing with substance abuse and uh, with mental illness. Is that something that you've found? Well, there are, there are significant numbers of unhoused people who have those problems. Uh, most of the people who have those problems are housed. Um, there are 300,000 people with severe and chronic mental illness in Los Angeles, only a small number uh, of which, uh, a relatively small number of which, uh, are unhoused. I mean, people who have those kinds of problems are less able to compete for housing in a terrible housing market. But um, at the same time, all the evidence suggests that there is no way of helping anyone with a behavioral health or addiction problem while they're homeless. It just can't be done. I mean, it's hard 
it's hard enough for people who have those sorts of issues to to deal with them when they're housed. But um, being on the street makes it makes it essentially impossible. And all the evidence is that nothing that is done for people uh, on the street uh, has any 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 immediate or lasting effect. So just rounding them up and putting them out of sight and out of mind, that's <laughs> that's no prescription for, for dealing with the problem. No, and uh, it's not a prescription for dealing with the problem uh, at all. It's, uh, it is uh, dealing with it as if it were just a problem of aesthetics as opposed to, to human rights. And um, um, people do have self-interest in their property values and so on, and they're they have a lot of stereotypes about unhoused people being dangerous and harmful to your children and that sort of thing, and that is the well, you know what's being um, you know used in the in the media to describe the situation and people who don't know any better um, tend to believe that. But uh, the the you know, the fact is people will um, will not go voluntarily into these camps. Uh, if you will, they will just find a place out of sight, um, which will be a much more difficult for them. So it's really an exercise in moving people from one place to another. Um, and um, with the, the threat of basically these uh, forced encampments, forced camps as, a, as the only alternative. So this is a nationwide problem, is it not? Or a nationwide phenomenon. I don't. I don't want to use the word problem because that's that's what the people like Caruso say. It's a problem. And their solutions, of course, are cruel and unusual. Yes, it's a it's a national problem, but it's um, nowhere as um, as prevalent uh, as it as it is. And by that, I mean visible homelessness. I mean the the uh, the rates of homelessness are in general are similar um, in different places. Um, but to give you an example, there are in uh, New York City about 3,000 uh, unhoused, unsheltered uh, homeless individuals, and in L.A. that's about 30,000. So um, a lot of it depends on what's what's available uh, locally and what infrastructure has been, has been uh, set up. And uh, nobody's talking about doing anything serious about dealing with the issue of providing people anything close to ordinary housing. Uh, they're just not. And they're, when they do talk about it, they talk about it in such blue sky terms that people who know anything immediately uh, just turn away. But is this a kind of a national indictment on the U.S. as a people? Have we basically become conditioned to accepting the notion of disposable people? Um, I try not to be uh, cynical, but um, I have certainly seen a lot a lot of evolution in uh, public attitudes towards this issue. This was an issue when I, uh, a public issue when I first started working on it in the 80s, and it was, a, it was the most important issue in Los Angeles in the, in the uh, early 80s in terms of the, the polling, but people's attitudes were this is something that requires us to help people. Uh, and now um, at least a significant part of the public says, I don't care whether you help them or not, help me by getting them out of sight. So other societies, of course, are different, and they don't tolerate this. You know, 
there's homelessness all around the world, but I think we are particularly failing here in the U.S. and more so in California. So no, I think that, I think that's exactly right. I mean, homelessness in in uh, extremely poor countries is um, is not unusual. What is unusual is anything like the degree of homelessness that we have in the United States uh, in any industrialized or, or wealthier country. It's just uh, similarly with um, you know things like gun control. The United States is just way um, off the norm. It's an incredible outlier, and it's. Um, you know, I should also say that this is infused by the structural racism. Um, that means that in Los Angeles, if you are a black person, you are six to eight times more likely to be homeless than a white person. And um, that, um, that I think, makes it a little easier uh, for people to, uh, uh, who, are, who have taken on board those racist attitudes to uh, mm. to tolerate it and, and to um, and to support support things they wouldn't support if the people at issue were anything like them. Well just in closing though, isn't there also the issue of inequality? Because Caruso, this billionaire developer, he lives in Brentwood, which is a fairly ex- exclusive neighborhood in Los Angeles, and uh, he his house is an entire city block enclosed in a huge high wall. So that's he's kind of the epitome of wealth and privilege here, and he spent $42 million of his own money to get... Uh, he's not elected yet, but he's in the runoff for November. He came out ahead of uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass, 42 to 37%, at least as far as the latest returns indicate. So... I would suggest, surely, uh, Gary, that there's also the element of inequality here, that this guy has an awful lot and he's appealing to people who want to hold on to what they've got as opposed to making the society better for all of us. Well, just to, to highlight the question of inequality, so Caruso's on one end of the spectrum, but even before COVID and, and uh, the more recent problems, there were in L.A. County uh, about two or three years ago, about 600,000 people living in um, in rental units that the rent on which was 90% of their total income. So under those circumstances, um, the fact that people fall into homelessness is perfectly predictable. And then when they fall into homelessness, once upon a time, even in the United States, we had something like a social safety net. And the bottom of that social safety net and Los Angeles is called General Relief or General Assistance. It provides a total of $221 per month to meet all your needs, which is exactly the, the same dollar amount that it provided in 1983. Um, and in 1983, one could actually get a $50 a week flop house room. Uh, today, it would take six people uh, receiving General Relief to share one room um, given what the market prices are, are these days. So uh, that inequality is longstanding, but it's become incredibly uh, concentrated and, and more extreme just in the, in the past several years. Well, Gary Blasey, I thank you very much for joining us here today. 
uh, I'd like to say it was my pleasure, but uh, thank you for highlighting this issue. And again, I've been speaking with Gary Blasey, who's a professor of law emeritus at UCLA, who is also the founding and core faculty in the law school's program in public interest law and policy. He also served as director of the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment with 40 years experience in property law, housing and homelessness. He was named one of the top 100 lawyers in California, cited as the go-to lawyer for community groups in need. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining what can be done to prevent the November election of a billionaire developer who would create homeless encampments while adding more police to criminalize an issue with its roots in poverty, inequality, unaffordable housing, mental health and substance abuse. I was burned out from exhaustion, buried in the hail. Poisoned in the bushes and blown out on the trail Hunted like a crocodile, ravaged in the corn Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Peter Dreyer, who's a distinguished professor of politics and chair of the Urban and Environmental Policy Department at Occidental College. His books include Place Matters, Metro Politics for the 21st Century, and The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, A Social Justice Hall of Fame. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter Dreyer. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Peter, and this the Monday morning quarterbacking, and uh, I guess Wednesday morning in this case, after the yesterday's elections here in California, primary elections, seems to be uh, in the press that the votes in San Francisco and in Los Angeles were a rebuke of the left, of progressive politics, with the, um, the progressive uh, DA in San Francisco suffering a defeat and the fact that a billionaire developer here in Los Angeles is in the runoff for mayor. He didn't win outright. Caruso, and of course he became a Democrat just before running. He's a lifelong Republican who became a Democrat just before the elections, ran on a homelessness and tough on crime policy. So he really had no specifics. So what does it mean when politicians like Caruso say, we need to deal with homelessness. What do they mean? Well, in Caruso's case, what it means is if you spend $34 million of your own money to get 42 your million, on, apparently. Okay, okay, well, $42 million of your uh, own money to, um, uh, to get your TV ads and your radio ads on the air, you can persuade people that you're a serious candidate and that you have serious ideas. But the truth is that uh, Caruso, if you look on his website or you listen to his comments uh, on the campaign trail, he has absolutely no plan to deal with homelessness other than to get them out of sight, which means to continue the policy of pushing people off the streets without dealing with the housing crisis and the mental health crisis that in combination is the reason that we have close to 40,000 people on the streets of Los Angeles. Um, Caruso spent 11 times more, uh, or even more than that, um, than Karen Bass. Uh, at the beginning of his campaign, when he, right before he announced, uh, two-thirds of the voters in Los Angeles had never heard of him before. 
They might have shopped at some of his shopping malls, but they didn't know who Rick Caruso was. Only the insiders in uh, L.A. politics knew who Rick Caruso was. And he used that, um, you know, his deep pockets uh, to increase his name recognition and visibility. Karen Bass hardly spent any money because she was already reasonably well-known in Los Angeles. And so now the runoff is really going to be the real test uh, because, among other things, the people that came in third and fourth and fifth in this election, who together account for about 15% of the vote, Kevin DeLeon, Gina Viola, and Mike Fuhrer, uh, most of those votes will go to Karen Bass. And then there'll probably be an increase uh, overall in turnout, hopefully in November, because there will be other things going on. Um, and so I don't think this portends um, a, a conservative wave in Los Angeles. Uh, I think uh, if you look at some of the other election results, uh, you see that progressives and liberals uh, won seats for city council and uh, for and for other races uh, or in the runoffs. In the sheriff's race, uh, the right-wing one-order sheriff, Alex Villanueva, only got 34% of the vote, and uh, his opponents got about 60% of the vote. So... Uh, it doesn't look good for him to get reelected. So overall, I don't think this um, is a reflection of any conservative uh, backlash against crime or homelessness. I think it's um, just a matter of Rick Caruso spent a lot of money. And when people start you know, closer to the November election, when people start scrutinizing uh, Rick Caruso and Karen Bass, I think it's going to be pretty clear that Caruso doesn't really have any plans. In order to solve homelessness, you've got to spend money. You've got to spend money on housing, and you've got to spend money on, um, and on, uh, on care, on managed care for people that need it. Um, and he has not proposed any way of raising any money to do that. Uh, Karen Bass uh, has a plan that would help build more housing uh, and address the mental health issues. So hopefully the voters will uh, recognize that in November. And again, I'm speaking with Peter Dreyer, who is a distinguished professor of politics and chair of the Urban and Environmental Policy Department at Occidental College. His books include Place Matters, Metro Politics for the 21st Century, and The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, A Social Justice Hall of Fame. So what does it say, though, about our society, the fact that he wanted to get 42% of the vote to her 37%. And of course, the mail-in ballots haven't been counted yet. But that's what I'm concerned about as a, as a society, not just here in a blue state like California, but across the country. We are becoming a, a society that accepts the notion that people are disposable. And it seems that if you get into that situation... That might explain why there's this out-of-sight, out-of-mind attitude to homelessness. It's just something that, a blight that they want removed, as opposed to, in other words, it's it's a cruel as opposed to a compassionate approach. So that's why I'm questioning what it means to deal with homelessness. Does it mean out-of-sight, out-of-mind, or does it mean to actually solve the problems? And you mentioned one of the components, which is very important, and that is mental health. 
I think the true test in Los Angeles about this will come in November when voters are asked to vote on a ballot measure that would increase uh, sales, the tax on real estate sales for properties that sell for over $5 million. It's called uh, United to House LA. Uh, it is a, uh, a ballot measure that is was put on the ballot by a, a coalition of labor unions, uh, faith organizations, housing and tenants groups, uh, the United Way, and other groups. And it is truly the only and the boldest solution to the housing and homelessness crisis in Los Angeles. It would uh, raise about $800 million a year uh, that would go uh, into a fund to build more affordable housing, to provide rent subsidies for people facing eviction and potentially homelessness, uh, and to provide tenants with the education about their rights and the legal support they need to defend themselves when landlords harass them and try to get rid of them in order to raise the rents. Um, that will be on the ballot in November. Um, it's a very bold idea, um, but it's a very fair idea that you know people that have made a lot of money holding onto their properties, uh, office, uh, office buildings, uh, large apartment complexes, <clears throat> and big mansions ought to pay more in, um, in, in taxes when they transfer or sell their property. Um, I think all the polls, Ian, show that there's a combination of uh, a sense of compassion and a sense of fear about the homeless crisis in Los Angeles and around the country. Uh, people say in polls that homelessness is the biggest problem facing Los Angeles and the housing crisis along with it, and crime is number two. Um, but when they say it's the biggest problem, what do they mean by that? Well, partly they mean uh, a sense of compassion. Nobody wants to see people sleeping on the streets um, and people uh, with no place to live. Uh, but also people are fearful about um, uh, potential uh, crime in those tents and uh, tent camps and other places where people who are homeless uh, congregate. Um, and so I think it's, a, it's not just uh, retribution against poor people. Um, it's a sense of compassion, but also a sense of we need to, um, to make sure that our neighborhoods are safe. Um, and Rick Caruso has no solution to either of those things. Uh, Karen Bass was a community organizer before she went into politics, a very successful one, as well as the physician's assistant. And she spent all of her life working uh, to develop uh, grassroots power for people who were otherwise left out of politics. With Caruso, his involvement in politics has been named by powerful mayors and other people to sit on various commissions and boards. Um, but he's about as far removed from the crisis on the streets or the concerns of everyday Angelinos as you could imagine. He is, as um, Karen Bass portrays him, the Donald Trump of Los Angeles. Now, Donald Trump won the election by spending a lot of money and um, and lying. Um, you know, it's possible Caruso could get away with that, except Los Angeles is much more progressive and liberal, the, the voters are, than the people 
in those states that elected Donald Trump. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm worried uh, that Caruso might just deep uh, dig much deeper into his pockets and spend so much money that he can bamboozle people. But uh, at the end of the day, um, there will be a lot of people on the streets knocking on doors, talking to people uh, to get Karen Bass elected. And remember that one of the most important constituencies in this election, the labor unions were split in this primary between Karen Bass and Kevin DeLeon, and they didn't go all out in this primary. Uh, now that we have uh, Karen Bass versus Rick Caruso, uh, the, the unions will spend a lot of money, but even more important, uh, their members will be knocking on doors uh, and uh, making phone calls and doing uh, the grassroots work that's necessary to elect somebody like Karen Bass to office. So, um, and I think most people uh, in L.A. Uh, recognize that, uh, you know, a, a billionaire developer is not going to solve the problems of the poor or even of the middle class. And a billionaire developer who specializes in kind of upscale malls frequented by more affluent people in the Pacific Palisades and Glendale and in the, the Grove in Los Angeles. I don't know whether he could end up coming up with a plan for homelessness to build what gilded windowless boxes, which many of these plans are, you know, to build, you know, little cabins, something slightly better than a tent. The problem is, surely, Peter Dreyer, that people think that money is the solution. And so far, there was an initiative passed in Los Angeles for money for to deal with the homeless crisis. And I'm not, sh not sure that that money's been well spent. I'm not sure how it's been spent. The state of California has a $97.5 billion surplus. Are they going to be tapping into that? So is that the kind of mentality we're dealing with here, that money will solve this problem, as opposed to dealing with mental health, which obviously money is a, is a factor there, but policy should also be a factor, surely. Well, they go together, Ian. I mean, uh, this uh, ballot measure I'm talking about in November that, that qualified for the ballot, uh, the, the, the activists got enough signatures, that will raise, as I say, $800 million a year. That uh, They'll be able to build between four and 5,000 units of, of totally affordable housing for um, nurses and school teachers and janitors um, and housekeepers and hotels and other people that are at risk of becoming homeless or facing um, eviction. Um, and some of that money will go to provide rent subsidies for people. Um, so you, you need to change policy. Uh, the policy that Rick Caruso and other conservatives want is just to, you know, force them off the streets and, and move them around and in some cases throw them in jail, uh, people without homes. That's, you know, that's a policy. It's not an effective or successful policy, but that's the kind of policy that Rick Caruso and people like him support. Uh, Karen Bass and other progressives and liberals recognize that, you know, you can only solve the homelessness and the housing crisis by building more housing um, and not just luxury housing, but building housing that ordinary people, secretaries and school teachers and uh, and uh, janitors can afford, 
And that's what this proposal in November would do if the voters vote for it. The polling on that was very positive. It showed um, that uh, about 65 or 66% of the voters support it. They only need 50% plus one to pass it. Um, you know, there are people that want to uh, solve the homeless crisis by, as you said, putting people in little boxes. Um, but uh, th this proposal uh, called the United House LA would build real housing for people. And, you know, um, you mentioned that there was a previous ballot measure, Measure HHH, uh, which the voters supported overwhelmingly. Um, and uh, in fact, it's built quite a bit of housing, um, more than people know. Uh, it's not a failure. Um, there has been some opposition to building some uh, housing in certain neighborhoods, but, uh, you know, that's, that's typical. But it's actually been quite successful. And, you know, you can't solve the mental health crisis uh, without providing people with managed care, which means social workers and therapists and places, halfway houses and, and other places where people can manage uh, to survive and to address their mental health crisis. The, 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 the root cause of the homelessness crisis in L.A. is the lack of affordable housing, the weakness of our rent control system in, in, in Los Angeles, uh, the number of low-wage jobs that pay poverty wages that aren't enough to help people pay the rent, um, and something that started in the 70s, the, the uh, closing down of our mental hospitals and the dumping of uh, of people on the streets who had mental health issues. Um, and we're still dealing with that. The federal government used to spend a lot of money to help middle-class homeowners pay their mortgages and low-income people to pay their rent. Um, and under, um, under every president since uh, Ronald Reagan, we've continued to help middle-class or upper-middle-class people pay their mortgages but we've dramatically, the federal government has dramatically cut the amount of money to help uh, working class and poor people pay the rent. And so uh, cities are kind of often left to their own devices to have to deal with it. Most cities don't have enough money to deal with it. That's why this United to House LA ballot measure is it was put on the ballot, because LA can afford, not entirely, it can't solve the problem entirely, but it can afford to make a huge dent in the problem if the people that um, uh, own and then sell at huge profits, the office buildings, the big apartment complexes, and the mansions that people uh, sell for over $5 million um, that they might have bought for $2 million a couple of years ago, um, they ought to pay a little bit more in uh, transfer taxes um, to help the people on the streets and to clean up our streets uh, uh, and to help, from a compassionate point of view, people that are, that are homeless to, uh, to straighten up their lives. And to, the first thing you need to do to help even mental, uh, people that are mentally ill to straighten their lives is to provide them with stable housing. And we've done some of that with the measure HHH money, but that was a one-time thing. That was a one-time measure. Um, this United to House LA ballot measure is a permanent measure. Every year, uh, people that sell their homes for over $5 million or their office buildings or their apartment complexes 
will pay into this fund, and it could last for 20 or 30 years as long as the um, the voters say it's okay uh, and don't uh, don't repeal it. And that will be the, the boldest solution to the housing and homelessness crisis of any city in America. So, uh, in addition to Karen Bass and Rick Caruso being on the ballot in November for mayor, and uh, in addition to the uh, the elections for uh, for sheriff and for assessor and for um, city council and city attorney and all the other offices, voters will have a chance to vote on public policy. Uh, and that will help solve the homeless and housing crisis uh, more than anything else. Well, Peter Dreyer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, my pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Dreyer, who is a distinguished professor of politics and chair of the Urban and Environmental Policy Department at Occidental College. His books include Place Matters, Metro Politics for the 21st Century, and The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, A Social Justice Hall of Fame. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing whether the nation's pundits are right in interpreting the results of the California primaries as a rebuke of the progressive left and a warning to the Democratic Party to get tough on crime and reject criminal justice reform. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lara Bazelon, who's a professor of law and the director of the Criminal, Juvenile Justice and Racial Justice Clinic programs at the University of San Francisco School of Law. Previously, she was director of the Loyola Law School Project for the Innocent and a trial attorney in the Office of the Federal Public Defender in Los Angeles for seven years. A contributing writer for Slate and Politico magazines, she's the author of Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lara Bazelon. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Lara, and you're in uh, San Francisco where the recall of the district attorney, Chesa Boudin, is being portrayed as a rebuke of the political left. How do you see it? I think the story is a lot more complicated than that. There are things about this recall that are very specific to San Francisco. So, for example, the amount of money that was poured into this recall, over $7 million, much of it by wealthy billionaires, some of whom were Republicans. And there was a keen interest in getting Chesa out of office by people in the tech industry, wealthy elites, because he had prosecuted things like wage theft and misclassification of workers, which they tend to engage in. So it was in their interest to get rid of him. That said, the city is only 7% Republican. And so most of the people who voted to oust him are Democrats. And what that means is that progressives have a lot of soul searching to do it's not, I think, so much about the policies, which poll well, generally. It is really about the implementation and the messaging around them. But how do you think this is being translated nationwide to, to the Democratic Party? Because a lot of the punditry is suggesting that this is along the lines of defunding the police, that there's a kind of 
rebellion against the progressive left of the Democratic Party. I do worry that the national media in particular, although our media is guilty of it too, is stoking exactly that narrative, which is a very quick and clickbaity kind of narrative that this recall is the death knell of reform and that Democrats need to pivot hard to the right if they want to win in November and in elections moving forward. And I think that that is just such a simplistic and misplaced narrative. And you need look no further than some of the other races that we had. We have two progressives in a runoff in Alameda County. We had other progressives win in California. Attorney General Rob Bonta defeated his right opponents, some of whom were Democrats easily. And so it's just not that simplistic a narrative. So is there a sense, though, that here in Los Angeles, of course, a billionaire developer is in a runoff now against the former congresswoman from mayor of Los Angeles. He only became a Democrat just before running in the race. And there's a sense that that there's a not a, so much a rebuke, but there's a feeling that uh, he ran on the on the ticket of getting tough on crime without any specifics and also dealing with homelessness. And dealing with homelessness, what does that mean? I mean, the DA in San Francisco did try to deal with homelessness, whatever that means. So give us a sense of what where you think the public is in terms of whether it's cruelty or compassion when it comes to dealing with homelessness. The homelessness issue is an interesting one it's not a crime to be homeless. And in fact, the Ninth Circuit, which has jurisdiction over California, as well as uh, six other states, has made it clear that it's not a crime. And so this idea that electing somebody who's willing to round up someone simply because they don't have a home and dump them in jail, it's, it's illegal and kind of silly. But I think people who are really tired of seeing so much desolation and despair really cotton on to the idea that if you can just get rid of the problem so it's not in their line of sight, everything will somehow be better. I mean, the LA landscape is really interesting because Caruso, of course, is going up against Karen Bass, who is a progressive, who was favored really to walk away with this race and didn't, as you say, he poured, I think, over $40 million of his own money. And he's gotten a lot of celebrities, disappointingly, to endorse him as well. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out this summer and in the fall leading into November. Well, the celebrities, of course, that are supporting him, you have the goop lady. <laughs> what's, her, what's her name? Gwyneth Paltrow. Sorry, yeah. But, you know, there isn't really a homelessness problem in uh, Brentwood. And again, you wonder why people from affluent neighborhoods are so obsessed with the idea of this blight that they see, whether they really care about the fate of our fellow human beings here. You know, we live in a society where human beings are becoming disposable. I think that's a rebuke to all of us, isn't it? It is. And it also just belies the fact that this problem of people not being able to afford housing has long predated the rise of the progressive movement. We've had these encampments now stretching back for decades, including under far more conservative politicians. And so to say it's the cause of electing people who are more left-leaning is a historical. It's just simply false. And I think this idea that we can kind of return to the tough on crime solutions in the past in which homelessness flourished is also a false solution. We know that doesn't work. 
And again, I'm speaking with Lara Bazelon, who's a professor of law and the director of the Criminal, Juvenile Justice and Racial Justice Clinical Programs at the University of San Francisco School of Law. Previously, she was director of the Loyola Law School Project for the Innocent and a trial attorney in the Office of the Federal Public Defender in Los Angeles for seven years, a contributing writer for Slate and Politico magazines. She's the author of Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. So the fact that you've worked as a, a federal public defender, Lara, and that the DA who was just ousted in San Francisco is also a, previously a public defender, there's precious little public defenders in the legal system, particularly in judges. Uh, we've only just recently have a, had a little bit of, a, of balancing the very, very tilted playing field, uh, given how many corporate lawyers and prosecutors become judges and um, we've got an extremely right-wing Supreme Court now dominated by right-wing radicals. So that's a pretty sad situation but I guess you can take some comfort from the latest member of the Supreme Court, right? She's she's a former public defender, at least in part. I was overjoyed when Katanji Brown-Jackson was confirmed I only wish she wasn't part of a very small minority on the court. And I think while it's wonderful that she's there, she and the other two people who lean in a more liberal direction are just outnumbered by a factor of two at this point. So you're holding your breath then for some of the radical rulings coming down on abortion. And the one area that's not being given as much attention as abortion is the extent to which this new radically conservative Supreme Court is exercising or accruing enormous power to itself. And you recall that Stephen Bannon once said that his project and Trump's project is to deconstruct the regulatory state. And that's exactly what this Supreme Court's about. They've gone after OSHA, they've gone after the CDC, and they're going after the Environmental Protection Agency. So we will soon have a government where the government will expertise and government departments will not be able to protect the public. Anything with public in it will be eviscerated. And, you know, the Koch brothers will get their payback for investing in in these races uh, to get Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. It is absolutely the case that Republicans are ruthless and incredibly effective in carrying out the agenda of putting people who are part of the hard right wing on the lower federal courts, the appellate federal courts, and now stacking the Supreme Court. And what's your sense then in terms of just combining our conversation, uh, starting out about San Francisco to this broader issue of what's happening on the, the national landscape? with the law being tilted to the right. What's the possible pushback here? I think it comes back to what you and I were discussing at the outset of the interview, which is that progressives have to be able to make a more convincing case for their reforms. Because if you look at the policies in isolation, they do poll well. People want innocent people to be exonerated. People want those who are committing lower level crimes to not do excessive terms in prison and instead get treatment. People want alternatives to incarceration if you can explain that they're more effective and 
likely to leave the person better off than simply sending them away for a short or long period of time. So it's really about messaging that and also explaining that the issues that people are so angry about in San Francisco, we had a couple of extremely high profile, horrific tragedies that were horrible crimes, that that's inevitable. That is going to happen no matter who the district attorney is. And that in addition to that, there are going to be slip ups and mistakes in any administration. But for so long in our society, we've been conditioned to associate Democrats with being soft on crime and Republicans with being the party of law and order, that people just reflexively go back into that thought groove. And it's really on us, the left, to change that paradigm. Well, the uh, attacks against progressive district attorneys are continuing. You've just voted out the progressive district attorney, Chesa Boudin, in San Francisco, and there's a recall effort underway here in Los Angeles for the district attorney, George Gascon, who was previously in San Francisco, wasn't he? He was the police chief there. Yes, he was the police chief, and then he was appointed to be the district attorney when Kamala Harris left to run for attorney general, and then he ran and won on his own, and then he left to run for DA in LA. That's correct. And do you think that uh, he's in danger here? I mean, mean, uh, you're not here. I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, I should be able to answer my own question. But (laughs) what's your sense of whether there's there's a movement afoot out here against progressives, even within the Democratic Party itself? L.A. is much more populous and it is much more diverse than San Francisco. So you need more names on the ballot. And you don't have the same elite, mostly white population to draw from in a similar percentage. But that said, yes, I think he's in danger. And I think there could be another recall. So what's your sense then as somebody that's been a public defender of whether this is a trend in the country in general, that this tough on crime, we talked about the homeless issue being front and center particularly here in the Los Angeles mayoral race. But the other one is crime. And we saw that earlier in New York, uh, where a former NYPD officer got elected. And already the talk, even Karen Bass, who's on the defensive against this uh, billionaire developer, Rick Caruso, she's calling for more and more police. So that seems to be pretty much where the Democratic Party's heading right into basically funding more and more police. I mean, when you deal with, for example, homelessness, a huge component in the homelessness problem is mental health and substance abuse. So I just get the feeling that putting more police on the on the streets is not going to solve any of these problems and that, you know, you, you need more social workers and, and than you do cops, surely to deal with the problems that are prompting politicians to assume that the answer is more cops on the beat. I agree with you. And I think that you're right that Democrats who are afraid that they won't be able to win office or hold on to the offices that they have are racing to talk about how much more money they plan to give the police. And it's interesting you brought up how defund the police has become such a toxic slogan. And I agree with you that it has. What's ironic is 
I can't think of a single police department that actually was defunded. And here in San Francisco, our mayor is doing the same thing. She wants to divert a disproportionate amount of our surplus to hiring more police officers. This in a city that is more policed than any other city in California that has 100,000 or more people. So yes, we are headed in that direction. And I think it's very disappointing for the reasons that you say. Well, do you think that what happened in Uvalde, Texas, is is changing anybody's mind, where the police basically stood around, 19 police officers were standing outside the doorway, where inside the schoolroom, 19 children and two teachers were slaughtered methodically by a shooter who the the 19 police refused to uh, deal with. And this is, you know, obviously being investigated further, and I believe that there was a Supreme Court decision in 2005 signed uh, the majority opinion from Justice Scalia. There was a case where a, a woman got an ex- a restraining order against her husband who then was able to murder their three children and she sued the police department uh, and the Supreme Court found that the police do not have a, they do not have a duty to protect unless it's given specifically in writing beforehand. Is that your understanding? I'm not familiar with that case, but I don't think that tragedies like Uvalde are going to change the dynamic that we were talking about, because I don't think that people draw a correlation. I mean, it's interesting. Here in San Francisco, I said we're very heavily policed, but we're also incompetently policed. The San Francisco Police Department makes clearance arrests in less than 9% of most crimes and less than 1% of auto burglaries, which is perhaps the offense that draws the most consternation with San Francisco residents. And yet, even with this abysmal performance, the mayor is going to throw millions and millions of more dollars at them. It seems like it's rewarding bad behavior. So there is no impetus in the country to improve policing. And as a result of the outrageous behavior of these police in Uvalde, Texas, who instead of uh, dealing with the slaughter of children, actually arrested the parents. I think that there will be a course correction there because what happened was so outrageous. I mean, you had mothers leaping over the fence to get their children after being tackled and handcuffed by police. It was absolutely outrageous. And I do think that that kind of embarrassing charade, hopefully that will happen less often. But as to the more endemic problems, as you say, police are not usually the appropriate people to be dealing with the homeless population. Police often mishandle other types of situations that are less catastrophic than mass shootings. I'm not sure we're going to get the reforms that we need there, and that's crucially important. Well, Lara Bazelon, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Lara Bazelon, who's a professor of law and the director of the Criminal, Juvenile Justice and Racial Justice Clinical Programs at the University of San Francisco School of Law. Previously, she was director of the Loyola Law School Project for the Innocent and a trial attorney in the Office of the Federal Public Defender in Los Angeles for seven years, a contributing writer for Slate and Politico magazine. She's the author of Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, 
please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me One more light goes out